it's a joy to be here. It's really a privilege. This morning, what I wanted to do is I wanted to open up Psalm 110. And I'm not sure how often we as churches in America hear a message specifically on what Christ is doing right now. I know we get it because of his priesthood, because of his, um, because of his ministry of interceding for us. We, we see it all over the pages of the New Testament. But here in Psalm 110, we have a passage that is dealing specifically with the exaltation, the ascension, and what's called the session of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word session, it's the idea of he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And here in Psalm 110, a prophecy is given of this very thing. And so in Psalm 110, I want to read this with you this morning and then unpack what it says. It's one of the Old Testament passages, by the way, that distinguishes between two persons of the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son. At least that's how Jesus understood it when he interpreted it in the Gospels. But here in Psalm 110, let me read it for you. Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Now here in this passage this morning, I think this is the most important message you could hear this morning. What exactly is the Lord Jesus doing right now? What is he doing right this moment, right now? This is what we're going to see. Charles Spurgeon, the famous pastor, the Baptist pastor from England in the 1800s, he said of this, this psalm, Psalm 110, has been well designated the crown of all the psalms. And then he quotes the reformer Martin Luther who said, it's worthy to be overlaid with precious jewels. Why is that? Because this psalm, Psalm 110, is quoted more times in the New Testament than any other psalm. It's quoted at least 14 times. Some guys say up to 27 times that this is alluded to or quoted in the New Testament. The New Testament authors ran to this psalm constantly to explain what exactly Jesus is doing right now. In fact, the book of Hebrews, if you look at the structure of this psalm and you look at the structure of the book of Hebrews, you see that it's pretty much an explanation, an unpacking of this psalm. Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the temple. He's better than the priesthood. He's better. And what he's doing right now, Hebrews says, and we're going to see it later, is he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and once for all he made propitiation for sin so that now he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And this is our hope. This is what we rejoice in and celebrate. This is what we need to hear this morning. Because if you're like me, we forget this. I forget this. When I'm in the midst of trials, when I see the cares of life, I don't see Jesus on his throne. I see my trial filling my vision. 
And what I need more than anything is to get brought back away from my trial, away from my troubles, and I need to get a glimpse of Jesus Christ exalted and seated at the right hand, victorious as a warrior king who's coming again, and he's going to make everything new, and this won't last forever. So that's what this psalm is talking about. This is good news this morning. In fact, Jesus, he really sets the stage for this psalm. Think about the night before he was betrayed. He goes in and he celebrates the Passover with his disciples in the upper room. And John, chapters 14 to 17, talk about this upper room, this last night before he's going to go to trial and be betrayed and then be crucified. And he's speaking to them of all of these wonderful blessings that are going to come because he's going to die. We're going to get another comforter. We're going to get the Spirit who's not just going to be with us. He's going to dwell in us. We're going to have all the benefits of this covenant that's been promised from Abraham's time until Jesus' time. The believers in Christ are going to receive this new covenant. And so he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. What we celebrate this morning at the Lord's table is a celebration of everything Jesus accomplished and achieved through his death. And at the very end in chapter 17, as he begins to pray, this prayer of Jesus, he says, I'll read it for you in verses 4 and 5. He says, I glorified you. He's speaking to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus wants glory in a specific way in this verse. He wants glory along with the Father. It's never apart from the Father. Further, it's this glory that that Jesus had as the eternal Son of God with the Father, eternal glory before the world ever began. And he says, Father, glorify me with that glory. And then later in the passage, in verse 23 of John 17, he says, In that day I'm going to be in them and you in me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me. And love them even as you've loved me. Jesus says there's two reasons that I'm going to go and I'm going to send the Spirit. And the Spirit's going to indwell them so that all of the Godhead is going to be resident experientially in the believer. I in you and you in me and I in them, Father. So that, one, the world would know that you sent me. Jesus being exalted and seated at the right hand of the Father is vindicated When we go and share the gospel and the world knows that he, the Father, has sent the Son and then sent us to fulfill this great commission. And as lives are changed, we see this vindication of the Son. Secondly, he says that we would know the Father, that you have sent me. And secondly, you've loved them just as much as you've loved me. Now, hold on a second. Is that what that verse really means? I mean, if I were writing that verse, I would say, well, yeah, the Father, you've loved me, Ryan Rippey, in a significant way, but surely you haven't loved me just as you've loved the Son. He's your Son. He's lived with you from all eternity. You have experienced fellowship in the Trinity from eternity past so that he never needed anything. He was never lonely. You know that, right? God the Father wasn't lonely. God the Son wasn't lonely. God the Spirit wasn't lonely. They didn't need to create. There was nothing in them that required that they make us so that they would be relieved of their loneliness or if there was some need in them. 
No, what this great plan of salvation is is simply an overflow. Did you know that? The Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father and the Spirit's love for the Father and Son and all of this, what one theologian calls the happy land of the Trinity in eternity past as they existed in wonderful communion and fellowship. They didn't need any of this. But what happens as the Father loves the Son and gives a people to the Son, and the Son loves the Father and dies for those people and brings them back to the Father, we experience the overflow of the Father's love for the Son and the Son's love for the Father, and that's exactly what Jesus is talking about and what we're going to see in Psalm 110. You know, Hebrews says that Jesus, when he presents us back to the Father, he sings over us. He sings over us. He quotes the Psalms and he says, Here am I and the children that you've given me. This is good news. This should warm your hearts this morning because you're part of a plan that God has purposed from before the world began. And God always keeps his promises and he always fulfills his plans. And this is what we need to hear in the midst of our darkest times because that's the question we wonder. God, are you forgetting us? Are you going to keep your promises? Are you going to change your mind? And what we need to hear is, no, he's working his plan. And he takes great pleasure in his plan. And his plan included sending his son to the cross so that we could be purchased. And sending his spirit to indwell us, to conform us into the image of his son. And using our trials to be the refiner's fire that conforms us into the image of Christ. Well, I want you to see this and rejoice in this. I'm going to talk uh, probably a fair amount about the Trinity this morning. It's not just abstract and academic. I want you to see that the Trinity is related to the gospel. The Father sent the Son. God the Father so loved the world, He gave His only Son. See, this is immensely practical. And furthermore, you need to know this because as you understand this, you understand God for who He really is. He's the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. Well, Psalm 110 really breaks down into two portions. In fact, in your Bibles, you might have a bold number one for verse one and a bold number four for verse four. And that's the paragraph marks in this psalm, the way it breaks out. And, and that works out really well for us. In fact, we're just going to see these two things about Jesus. When the Father exalts the Son and seats Him at the right hand, the first thing we see in verses 1 to 3 is this Messiah King's exalted rule. He's a king who is the Messiah. And he's been raised up and seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is ruling and reigning. The Messiah King's exalted rule. And the second thing we see is this warrior priest's exalted victory. This warrior priest's exalted victory. He is a warrior priest. He's a high priest who's perfect, but he's a warrior. And he is victorious. And when he says it's finished, it's finished. And there's coming a day when all his enemies will be put under his feet, as we're going to see. So let's look back at this in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
the Lord says to my Lord. Our English translation kind of, it doesn't do us a great service here because we have the same word Lord used to translate two Hebrew words, Yahweh and Adonai, two names for God. In fact, in your Bibles, you might have the first Lord is all in caps. And this is a little bit of trivia, but anytime you see all capital letters in an English translation, it's translating the word Yahweh which is the name of God, the covenant-keeping God, the one who is steadfast to keep all his promises because of what he swore concerning his people. This is the name he uses with Moses, for example, when he reveals his glory to Moses. You remember that? And he says, he's the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate and abounding in loving kindness, the one who forgives transgressions but who will by no means clear the guilty. The word Lord there is Yahweh. This is who God said to tell Pharaoh sent him, is I am that I am. And here we have this distinguishing between Yahweh the Lord and then Adonai the Lord. So Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now Jesus uses this verse to preach and silence his enemies. You remember that? In the Gospels, they were playing a game of stump the preacher. They were asking him all sorts of questions about the resurrection, about whose wife he is, is this woman going to be if she married a bunch of guys in the resurrection. The Pharisees tried to stumble him up and stump him with questions. And then he finally turns to them and says, let me ask you a question. When David says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, who's David's Lord? Furthermore, how could he be his son? You see, in Hebrew culture, David would always be greater than any of his sons. A father is always greater than a son. An ancestor is always greater than a descendant. And so for David to be speaking of the Messiah who was his descendant, but would be someone who is greater who he'd call Lord, it confused them. It blew their minds. They had no category for that. And so Jesus says, how could he be David's son and yet also be his Lord when speaking of the Messiah? They didn't know what to say. But the rest of the New Testament explains this question, doesn't it? The incarnation explains this question. The way that Jesus could be David's son as the son of man and also be David's Lord as the son of God is explained in the incarnation, Jesus, fully God, fully man. The eternal Son of God and the Son of Mary. Now that doesn't answer all the questions because we don't always understand all of the mystery of the incarnation and how this union of God and man could be together, unmixed, yet true. Fully God and fully man. But this is what the New Testament teaches and it solves the answer to this question that Jesus asked. So when Yahweh says to Adonai, sit at my right hand, and David knew he wasn't talking about himself, but the Messiah who was his descendant, he knew the Messiah must have to be God as well as man. He's God. See, the fathers ordained this from all eternity. 2 Samuel 7, we're not going to turn there, but David, after he had conquered 
his enemies. He's looking around at his palace. He, decide, he realizes God, the Father, is still manifesting his glory in the tabernacle, in this portable temple that was just a big tent. And so David says to the Lord, he says, I want to make you a house. I want to build you a temple. And in 2 Samuel 7, God speaks to David and says, you're not going to build me a house. Instead, I'm going to build you a house. And what God meant by that is I'm not going to build you a palace. I'm going to build you a dynasty. I'm going to build you a legacy of children. You're going to have a man sit on the throne forever. So David knew one of his descendants was going to be this Messiah that was promised from the garden. This seed of the woman, this descendant of the woman who was going to crush the serpent's head and who was going to rule and reign and restore everything that was lost in the garden. And so David, he knows this, and he, in fact, he sits back and he's just like, whoa, you've talked about my house for a long time to come. Yeah, eternity's a long time to come, you think? So Jesus comes on the scene as the son of David, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Revelation 5 says. We sang about him this morning, that Revelation song. And he's the one who's the fulfillment of that promise. You see, this is what the Father has promised and ordained from all eternity past. Ephesians 1 speaks of it. This great decree that the Father has purposed and planned and he's working out. This isn't plan B. God didn't look at the fall and say, oh no, what am I going to do? Maybe I'll send a son. Maybe that'll be the solution. No, it was the Father's great pleasure to send his son. And all of the Godhead is now for us in Christ. And so what we see here at the very beginning is that the Father ordained this from all eternity. And then secondly in verse 1, the Father gives Jesus the most exalted office. Sit at my right hand, he says in verse 1, until I make your enemies your footstool. I want to read you a couple passages. You can turn there if you'd like. Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. We have this prophecy of what's going to happen regarding the Father and the Son, this exaltation of the Son. Daniel, in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is what we sang about this morning. And in Hebrews 1, 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews says of Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God the Father and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high as he's become much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is much more excellent than theirs. This is what Jesus did. He was the son of man who was prophesied to come before the Ancient of Days to receive this kingdom. 
And it says the way he received this kingdom was through death, Hebrews says. After he made purification for sins, he was exalted, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians 2, verses 8 to 11. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has what? Highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we see it again. Their glory is not separated, is it? So that prayer of Jesus, Father, glorify me along with yourself, we see Paul saying, the Father exalts the Son and gives him the name above every name, the name of Lord, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess it, that he is Lord to what? The glory of God the Father. This is incredibly important as we think about our worship, as we think about the exalted Son, is that we worship Jesus. He is the direct object of our worship, but we also worship the Father who sent him as our ultimate object of worship. We need to think carefully about these things because this is the God we worship. Another implication from this is that now, seated at the right hand of the Father, is a man, the man Christ Jesus. The incarnation is so important because now we have a man seated at the right hand of the Father. Jesus, as the eternal Son, has been seated with the Father in glory from all eternity. But now, as the incarnate man, fully God and fully man, he's been exalted. He's the first one to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that means he's a faithful and perfect high priest for us. He knows what it's like. This should bring you great comfort, Christian. He knows your weaknesses. He's the one who knows what it's like to be tempted in all ways, yet without sin. He partook of flesh and blood and shared. And he's able then to understand you in your weaknesses, Hebrews says. To minister to you in your frailties. He knows how to sympathize with you. That's why he said a bruised reed he'll never break. A smoldering wick he'll never put out. Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden. And what did he say? I will give you rest. What kind of rest will I give you? I'll give you rest for your soul. If you're soul weary for life because of the things you've been through and the stupid decisions you've made and the sin that you've plunged into, the Lord Jesus can give you rest. He can heal your soul. And that's what he's doing right now this morning. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, given the place, the most exalted office, the most exalted position. He's been given the name Lord. And after his work is finished, he says from the cross, it is finished. And there's nothing we can do to add to it, is there? Nothing we can do to add to it. Our job is to simply say, he's Lord. I mean, think about that picture. It's as if Jesus comes into the world. He's sent by the Father. He lives a humble life as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, nowhere to lay his head. He's mocked and ridiculed. He goes to the cross. 
and he's become a curse word. And he suffers the wrath of the Father, and he's laid in the grave for three days. But then the Father raises him from the dead and exalts him and says, what does he say? My son, you've done a good job. Have a seat. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. His work is finished. He's not standing as if to work. He's seated and ruling and reigning as Lord. This is who is on our side. He's reigning next with the greatest authority. He says in verse 2, the Lord, actually at the end of verse 1, sit at my right hand, what? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. You know what this means that Jesus is Lord? There is no one who's going to veto his promises. There is no checks and balances in the kingdom of God. There aren't, uh, there isn't a Congress that's going to block his executive order. He is Lord and everything will come to pass that he says will come to pass. And this picture of making your enemies a footstool at your feet, it's a common custom, or it was at that time, it's not now, but it was at that time of a victor would place his foot on the neck or the body of a vanquished foe. It reminds me of a story. My baby brother, who's 13 years younger than me, uh, I grew up in Vallejo, so we took great pride in the fact that he got in his first fight at four years old. We were at a softball game with my parents and my brother, brother and I, of course, we were probably cheering it on and, and uh, he, he pushes this boy down. It wasn't much of a scuffle. I shouldn't make too much a big deal out of it. But what I remember is he loved the Ninja Turtles movies and he stuck his foot on the kid when he fell down and said, Raphael wins, won nothing. <laughs> and that's why we remember the story. His vanquished foe lied at his feet. But see, this is something far greater than that. This is the Lord of glory who is going to have the Father put all of his enemies under his feet. You see that there? The Father says, sit at my right hand until I make all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Father is right now serving the Son by making his enemies a footstool for his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. And there will be no peace on this earth until death is destroyed. You realize death is is not natural. It's a result of the fall. It's not what God intended. We shouldn't accept death as something that's just a part of the course of human life. It's something to be resisted with all of our might. It is an enemy. That's why we sit at the bedside of loved ones who were dying and we weep. It's why Jesus wept when Lazarus was dead. Death is an enemy. And we know this, don't we? You have loved ones. I know in a church this size, you have many probably who are suffering from cancer, who have this, as it were, a death sentence hanging over their head. But in Christ, death is killed. He killed death dead. And so we don't have to fear it anymore. And there's coming a day when Revelation pictures death is being taken and thrown into the lake of fire. And Jesus is going to have all of his enemies as a footstool for his feet. This is why John says in 1 John 4, 4, little children, you're from God and you've overcome them. He who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. 
This is the argument of Paul in the book of Ephesians. He starts in chapter 1, and he says, he's praying for the Ephesian church, and he says, you need to know something, Ephesians. You need to know that Christ has been raised from the dead. He's been seated in verse 20 at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places far above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion. And guess what? The Father has placed all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. This is where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And then Paul says in chapter 2, verse 6, guess what, Christian? The Father raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus above all these powers and dominions and rulers and authorities. So by the time Paul gets to chapter 6 and he says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces in the heavenly places, the conclusion is they're a defeated foe. They're at the feet of Christ. And so they are powerful, but we don't have to fear them. And we put on the armor of God, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is good news. That we have a Savior who's Lord, who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And he is ruling and reigning, and the Father is putting all of his enemies under his feet. Do you have enemies? You see, the book of Revelation, I had the privilege of preaching through it a couple years, two years ago. The book of Revelation is all about justice. It's all about the righteousness of God. We long for justice. We long for righteousness. What we want to see is God's righteousness on the earth. Don't you get angry when you see injustice? We see it in our culture. There's a huge battle brewing right now over the racial issues and the lack of justice, over a system that is broken. And we know as Christians that our hope and our Savior is not in this government. It's in the King who's on His throne, who's going to bring perfect justice so that there are no more babies killed, so that there are no more women taken advantage of, so that there are no more terrorists who fly airplanes into skyscrapers. There's coming a King who's going to establish perfect justice. His resurrection proclaims he lives and that forever. The exaltation of Christ proclaims he reigns and that forever. He is ruling and reigning. You see, the world lies to us. Satan lies to us. We're tempted to doubt the present rule and reign of Christ. We're tempted to look to other saviors, other lords, other kings to deliver us and bail us out of our situation. And what we must preach to our hearts is a simple truth. Jesus is on his throne. Pastor Shai Lin, he said this, our circumstances are not on our throne, Jesus is. Our jobs are not on our throne, Jesus is. U.S. presidential candidates are not on the throne, Jesus is. The media is not on the throne, Jesus is. Our medical condition is not on the throne, Jesus is. Mission sending agencies are not on the throne, Jesus is. Our present financial status is not on the throne. Jesus is. Failing governments are not on the throne. Jesus is. He's on the throne. This is what we need to hear. And what he's doing in verse 2 is he is exerting irresistible power. Verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And you know when he said that, we were enemies? When he said that truth, I will build my church, he was speaking about his enemies. We were all his enemies and you know what we were conquered by? The gospel of Jesus Christ. He turned his enemies into friends and more than friends, he turned them into adopted children of the Father so that now we're a part of his family. He's building his church. Think about that picture. I used to always think that that was a picture of we're standing here, Jesus is building his church, and hell's not going to come in and rush in and take advantage of us. But look in the picture. Jesus said, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail. Gates are what? A defensive thing. What has a gate? A city. So he's saying, as it were, cities, uh, hell is like a city, and it has gates. And guess what? I'm going to build my church, and those gates aren't going to keep me out. I'm going to go get my sheep. I'm going to get my children. My gospel is going to go forth, and it's going to save out of every nation and every tribe and every people and every tongue. And this is Jesus who's Lord, who's on his throne, who's doing it. He is exerting irresistible power, and he's gathering, in verse 3, people to himself. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. This is a little bit of a, a tricky verse, but he says they're going to offer themselves freely. In other words, they're going to worship you freely. New covenant worship. Your people, Jesus, as you rule on the throne, are going to come and offer themselves freely to worship you. That's what we do when we gather. And it says they're going to be in holy garments. Verse 3. They're going to be clothed in holy garments. And we know from the gospel, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We can approach and draw near because of the finished work of Jesus. We can, with boldness, draw near to the throne of grace. Because he made a way and went before us. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And then he says, from the dew of your youth... And wow, the commentators are all over the map on this verse. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. I think what he's getting at there is, Jesus, you'll have innumerable offspring. As Lord, you're going to have a, a multitude of offspring that are going to be like the dew, the morning dew. You could never count those droplets. And that's what it's going to be like. And isn't that the picture we see in Revelation? Gathered around the throne multitudes upon multitudes a tribe that no one could number gathered around the throne singing worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and glory and wisdom and strength why because he died in the place of his children he was buried he rose again is not what John saw he heard about this lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5, and he turns and sees a lamb standing as if slain. Resurrected lamb. What a picture. And he takes that scroll, and he has that authority to open that scroll and to finish up what's left in human history. And he's coming back, and by the time we see Revelation 19, he's seated on a white horse coming as a conqueror. What a picture. From eternity past, the Father chose a people to be His inheritance. He gave these people to His Son. And the Son came and died for these people. And then the Spirit draws and regenerates these people and seals them. And then the Son is going to bring all of us home and present us back to the Father. 
This is the plan and purpose of God. This is why Peter says, you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And that's the Father in the context. You're a people for the Father's own possession, that he may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. This is the wonderful truth that we're a part of this, but we didn't deserve it. Everything that the Son did, everything that he accomplished was not because there was something good in us. You know that. You know yourself. Husbands, just ask your wives. What we are, as one hymn writer says, is we are monuments to mercy. We are trophies of grace. We are his workmanship, his work of art created in Christ Jesus for good works that the Father's prepared in advance that we should walk in them. I know what's in me. After all, I'm from Vallejo. Nothing good comes out of Vallejo. And this thought that, that he's taken me off the ash heap of sin and self-righteousness, off the ash heap of my own idolatry, and he's shown me the glory of Christ, and by faith now I'm united to Christ, so now he's seated me in the heavenlies with Christ, and now I'm going to rule and reign with him forever? This is what he's done with me? And he's done it all because of his mercy and his grace, not because of what I deserve, but because of his love for his son and his son's love for the Father. And I just experienced the overflow of this. Hallelujah, what a Savior. You see, this is what should encourage you this morning. And I know I'm never going to get through this passage. But you're used to that, aren't you? The last three verses I can cover, the last four verses, four to seven, the warrior priest exalted victory. Here's what the father does in verse four. He gives him an exalted priesthood. He says, I've sworn and I won't change my mind. You're a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's, that's one of those Sunday school trivia things, isn't it? We don't hear about Melchizedek, but once in Genesis, once here in Psalm 110, and then in Hebrews. But the point of it is, he is a priest who rules forever. You see, the problem with the Levitical priesthood is they fell into the, the problem of your lawyer needs a lawyer. Right? You need a lawyer because you're guilty, but you know what? Your lawyer's guilty too, and he needs a lawyer. All those Levitical priests were guilty. They were sinners just like the people they were ministering to. And so what we needed is we needed a righteous priest. In fact, that's what Melchizedek's name means, king of righteousness, Melech and Tzadik, king of righteousness. And that's what Jesus came to be, was a righteous priest. And he's not only able to save you in the future, but as a priest, he's able to save you right now. Right now, today. He can meet your deepest needs. That's why Isaiah 6 called him a wonderful counselor. He's a wonder of a counselor. Have you ever gone to Jesus and found him meet your needs? He does, doesn't he? He's sufficient. He's a wonder of a counselor, and he's interceding right now for us. Right now for his saints. Not for some of them, for all of them he's interceding. Right now. Here we are gathered to worship him, and what's he doing? He's interceding for us. He's saying, Father, I know their hearts. I know their sin. I died for that sin, Father. He's leaning over, as it were, from the right hand of the Father, saying, Father, forgive that sin. Father, forgive that sin. 
that they committed this morning. Forgive the sin this week that they committed. He's interceding right now. And the Father in verse 5 is going to send him to destroy his enemies. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Wow. Because he's Lord, he's going to shatter kings. He is a warrior priest. He's not a namby-pamby priest. He's a warrior priest. And he's going to be victorious and shatter kings. This is what Revelation 6 says. The kings of the world cry out, hide us, fall on us. They cry out to the rocks. Because the wrath of the Lamb has come and the great day has come and who will stand? This is who Christ is. And the Father in verse 6 gives him all authority to judge. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Wow. This is a picture of Isaiah 63. Now that's a devotional for you. Read Isaiah 63, the winepress of the wrath of God, where instead of grape juice spilling up on his garments, it's the blood of his enemies. What a picture. Revelation 20 says when he comes back, the blood is going to be as high as a horse's bridle. That is graphic. And it's a picture of his power and his righteous rule because who he's crushing are his enemies who hate him and want to kill him. His enemies who, the book of Revelation says, slaughter Christians all day long. There's hope for our brothers and sisters who are being killed in the Middle East because Jesus is on his throne and he's going to execute righteousness. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't have to worry about it. There's coming a day. And we as Christians, we long for that day because we know it's a day of salvation, a day of hope, a day where everything that we've been promised will be given to us. Our inheritance will be vindicated. And then he says in verse 7, he'll drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. The picture is not hard to understand. The king drinking from a brook commentators divide over if this is before or after the judgment if it's before it's a reference to Gideon in Judges 7 where he had all those men drink from the water the 300 that were left that lapped the water like a dog before they went to battle if it's after it's a picture of refreshment after he's conquered his foes he goes to the water and he drinks and he lifts up his head well what should we do with all of this this exalted Christ turn to Colossians 3 and we'll just in there this is, should be our response this morning to the exaltation of the son Colossians 3 verses 1 to 4 if then you've been raised with Christ seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you've died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who's your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There it is. What we need to see is the excellency of Christ. We need to get a glimpse of him in his glory, in his sufficiency that he's all you need, in his supremacy. He's Lord. He's ruler over all. That means he's ruler in your life. 
And that's why we're to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is rather than things that are on the earth. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. What a day that's going to be. That's what we celebrate when we take the table. As often as we take it, what do we do? We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're longing for that day. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the time this morning. May you put before our eyes this morning by your spirit a clear picture of the Lord Jesus in his glory. Remind your children what Jesus is doing right now. He is ruling and reigning. He is interceding. He is a perfect high priest who's able to save to the uttermost those who come to faith through him because he ever lives to intercede for them. Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us and giving us your son. Thank you that you raised your son from the dead and you seated him at your right hand. Thank you that you've given him the name above every name. And Father, we want to bow our knee to Jesus as Lord. He is Lord whether we bow or not. We don't make him Lord. He is Lord. You have made him Lord, Father. And so we celebrate and rejoice in his lordship this morning. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. Eternity will not be long enough to say thank you for the Son. Thank you for the blessings we have in Christ. We long for that day when he comes back and we'll see him as he is. And we're going to be like him. We're going to be made fit for your presence, Father. And we're going to worship you. We love you. Thank you for first loving us.